Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Willy, Willy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who, Edward, four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's Twain and Ned the Lad, Mary, Bessie, James, Evane, Charlie, Charlie, James again, William and Mary. Yes, we're still on William and Mary, who come as a pair. So we did Mary in the previous episode, and we're doing William now. William was William III. He was William III of England. He was also William III of Orange. Of course, the first English William was William the Conqueror. The second one was his son, William Rufus. And we hadn't had a William since then. Looks like the English had gone off the name, but the Dutch were very fond of it. Although I'm pretty sure they pronounced it more like Willem. William was born in 1650 in Holland, in The Hague, Den Haag. He was the only child of William II, Prince of Orange, who had died from smallpox eight days before our William was born. And his mother was Mary Stuart, the Princess Royal of England, the eldest daughter of King Charles I. And thinking about our William and Mary, it's quite interesting looking at the way history is told to us, what's judged important. Now, I can only do very superficial research for this series. I've got to do a new monarch every week. I cannot read whole books about every single one of them. I do have other things going on in my life, which is why I get historians on who have devoted their lives to studying and writing about these people. And they can fill me in on, well, not only the details, but also the wider picture. So I will be eternally grateful to all of my guests who have given their time to come on and whose lifetimes knowledge and research I've been able to to basically steal, which is why I keep stressing that if you get interested in one of these monarchs, go to the books written by my guests. They can tell you so much more about them than I'll ever be able to. So I have a few general history books that I keep going back to, overviews of British history. I've talked about these books a lot, books like James Hoare's Fabulous Shortest History of England or Robert Lacey's Great Tales from English History. I've also been collecting old ladybird books, which I've also mentioned quite often, mainly for nostalgic reasons, as they remind me of my childhood, but also because, well, they're very good and straightforward potted histories. And, of course, I use the likes of Wikipedia and the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. I go to as many sources as I can, but I can only really scrape the surface and do a shallow dive into the story of each monarch. I try to get the essence of them, what made them important 
and interesting and what their story was. And what I found fascinating looking at William and Mary, who, as I say, always come as a pair, is how differently people talk about them. I gave Mary the dignity of going first for a change, uh, so she wasn't tucked in behind William as she normally is. And I have to say, and this is a massive oversimplification, but if you look at what people think is important about Mary, it's all about how she felt about her husband, the passionate letters she wrote, her adolescent crush on an older girl. It's a very feminine view, emotions, relationships, sewing and gardening. And when you look at William, it's, you know, it's, it's what battles he fought, what campaigns he was involved in. It's a very masculine view. It's all trade and warfare and hunting. And I found it very hard to find out anything much about William's emotional life, about what he actually felt about Mary. And for the short time that they jointly ruled England, Mary kind of stayed at home and got on with looking after things while William went gallivanting off about the place, fighting battles and leading armies. So, as I say, there seems to be a lot about what Mary felt about William. And personally, I'm not sure how much of that we can trust. There's very little about what William felt about Mary. In the previous episode, when we looked at Mary, we saw how as a 15 year old marrying this 26 year old man, she was not a happy bunny. At first, she found him cold and distant and, and let's face it, ugly. He was several inches shorter than her, for instance, and he had black teeth. <laughs> and the histories tend to say that she grew to love him and they became very devoted to each other. And certainly she made these public pronouncements. She sent these letters and told people. She expressed her undying love for him. And I wondered, you know, was she sort of protesting too much? Was she putting on a front, hoping that if she kept proclaiming her love, she would actually fall in love with him? So I don't know how genuine it was. And then William himself, as I say, I, I found it quite hard to find out that much about how he felt. Certainly nobody, not even William himself, makes any bones about the fact that he married Mary for purely political reasons. But then they tend to go on to say that he changed and did in the end, like her, genuinely fall in love. Some reports say that after she died, he kept a lock of her hair on his person at all times, although there doesn't seem to be any proof of this. Some reports say that when she was dying of smallpox, he set up a bed in a room so he could be near her. Uh, he'd already survived smallpox himself and assumed he couldn't catch it again. He appeared to be absolutely heartbroken and devastated and gave her a much more lavish funeral than she'd asked for. Can a cold-hearted and calculating man like William really change? The fact of the matter is he was never really popular in England. He was only there because he had married Mary, who was fully English. He was only half English and half Dutch. And she was a popular queen. And this is just me speculating. I haven't read any long Dutch books about William. I'm sure there are many. But anyway, as I see it, he had to try to convince the people that he was utterly devoted to Mary, utterly in love with her, and kept this locket of her hair close to his heart, perhaps as a talisman to protect himself against the wrath of the English. So he had to show the world how devoted he was to her, and thus to England. But as I say, this is this is my speculation based on the fact that most of the histories tend to concentrate on her emotions and his battles. So, as I say, his father was a Dutchman, William II of Orange. His mother was an Englishwoman, Mary, daughter of King Charles I, sister of Charles II and James II. And I mentioned the fact there that he had survived smallpox and smallpox played a huge part in his life. His father died of it before William was even born. Later on, his mother would die from it. His sister-in-law, Anne, would survive it, but his wife, Mary, would be taken by it. So when William was born, his father's dead, he was essentially already Prince of Orange. Now, Orange, confusingly, is in France, uh, down near Avignon. It was this sort of independent state. 
And Louis XIV eventually took over Orange and incorporated it fully into France. But the person who held the title of Prince of Orange was essentially the ruler of the Dutch Republic, which was a confederation made up of seven states, Groningen, Frisia, Overischel, Guelders, Utrecht, Holland and Zealand. And I may well have mispronounced half of them. And this area was ostensibly ruled by an elected official known as a stadtholder or stateholder. But by the time of William's birth, the stateholder title had become pretty much hereditary. It had been taken over by the Princes of Orange. So it was automatically bestowed on this little baby. It had been the Orange family who had been central to, to clawing back the control of Holland from the Spanish, who had taken over much of the Netherlands as part of the Habsburg Empire. And the Netherlands now were staunchly Protestant, and they were also increasingly Republican. Many people wanted to get rid of the title of Prince of Orange. They would prefer proper rule by Parliament. And the main leader of this movement is a man called Johann de Witt or de Witt. And he spent the first 20 years of William's life trying to make sure that William never properly took power. De Witt saw that because the Prince of Orange was basically a baby, it made the oranges, I don't know what else to call them, weak and vulnerable. And just as in England, whenever an infant comes to the throne, it leads to political intrigue and infighting. The Republicans in the Netherlands saw this as their opportunity to get rid of this kind of demi-monarch. And as I say, William's early life is taken up with a lot of complicated plots to stop him from ever properly taking power. I'm not going to go into all of that. It's hard enough keeping up with English history without trying to get on top of Dutch history. But essentially, William may never have taken his position as Prince of Orange. And we would not have him as a, let's face it, only vaguely understood part of our monarchy if King Louis XIV of France hadn't invaded the Netherlands, which meant that they needed to unite to fight him off. And in times of war, you need strong leaders, you need generals. William loved being a soldier. He was a better soldier than he was a statesman. And he devoted most of his life to fighting Louis XIV. He became absolutely obsessed. Or was he just being, you know, realistic? because this was seen as an existential threat. It could have been the end of the Netherlands. As I say, they had been under Spanish rule, but they eventually managed to kick them out. And for it's about 100 years, Holland has been independent. Spain's power is now dwindling. And that's one of the reasons why Louis XIV is able to increase his own power. Pushing the boundaries of France ever outwards taking over disputed areas like Alsace and the Lorraine. So we have the usual shenanigans going on in Europe, everyone making treaties and alliances, teaming up against each other. England has been wavering between trade wars against the Dutch and alliances with them. Uh, an alliance first against Spain under King Charles I and later on against France. So the English are also getting involved in Prince William's upbringing. They very much want him to fully take control as Prince of Orange and become a strong ally, as he is the son of a Stuart princess, his mother Mary, and therefore a potential very useful ally. And one of the side reasons for this conflict between England and Holland, the Anglo-Dutch Wars, was the English were trying to force the rest of the Dutch to acknowledge William Essentially, De Witt, as many of these Republicans do, becomes a sort of quasi-ruler of Holland, trying to unite the rest of Holland against the Prince of Orange. And in the peace negotiations at the end of the First Anglo-Dutch War, which is when Cromwell is in charge in England, he colluded with De Witt and they put in place a permanent ban on the House of Orange from being able to take control. But by the time Charles II came to the throne, this had been kind of reversed. None of these agreements, these treaties ever last long. Rulers sign them for short term gain. And once they've got that, they basically just break the agreement. And once we have the Stuarts back on the throne in England, 
Cromwell's plan to keep a Stuart relative from ever being in control of Holland is ditched. So that's my attempt at an overview of all this. I'll just jump back a bit to William's childhood. Um, It seems that when he was young, his mother was very distant and disdainful. She seemed to have no interest in this boy at all. She spent a lot of time with her brother Charles, the future Charles II, in France when he was exiled there by Cromwell after his father's execution and basically just left young William in the charge of other people. And some people have used this as an explanation for why he was so cold and distant and kept himself so much to himself as an adult. And he had a couple of Protestant teachers instructing him um, as a boy, but De Witt himself came in and took over and tried to instill in William a love of Dutch freedom and republicanism, trying to bend this boy's will to his own. And as we will see, that didn't end very well for De Witt. Uh, De Witt had managed to get himself elected Grand Pensionary of Holland. As far as I can tell, that means that from around 1650, he was basically in charge. He and various members of his family controlled the Dutch Parliament for over 20 years. But with his focus on government, he neglected the army. And when Louis XIV and the French started pushing into Holland, he didn't know what to do. He tried to negotiate with Louis thinking that talking was all that was needed to stop him, that Parliament would sort things out, make a treaty of some sort. But nothing stops the French advance. William rallies people round the name of Orange, the family that had saved Holland once before and kicked out the Spanish. He takes over control of the army and starts leading the defence. And he quickly becomes a very popular figure, someone to get behind. It has to be said that his early battles against Louis didn't go that well, but he manages to get the blame shifted and focused onto De Witt. And William manages to position himself as a heroic freedom fighter for the Dutch and fights back against the French, but he is now working hard to get De Witt undermined. So as I say, it's the invasion of Louis XIV that saves William, these these Franco-Dutch wars as the French push into Holland. This is a colonial thing. This is imperial. It's also religious. Louis is Catholic. The Dutch are Protestant. Louis has expelled the Huguenots, the Protestants from France, who many of whom ended up in London and many of whom ended up in Holland. The year of 1672 became known in the Dutch Republic as the Rampjaar, the disaster year. Because Holland is at war with France, the Franco-Dutch War, it's at war with England in the Third Anglo-Dutch War, and the French are really pushing into Holland. And William is involved in this scheme of flooding the dikes. So huge parts of Holland have been reclaimed from the sea. They've drained the water, they've created all these huge ditches, these dikes and dams and created new islands and landmass. But, you know, it seems that you can um, open some gates and let the water back in and flood this whole area and essentially create a a vast moat around the centre of Holland, which is what the Dutch did. They flooded the dikes, which meant that Louis' advance ground to a halt. And when King Charles's envoy, Lord Arlington, uh, met with William to try to get them to cave in to English demands... Arlington said to William that if he carried on fighting, he would witness the end of the Republic's existence, to which William famously replied, there is one way to avoid this, i.e. there's one way to avoid seeing the end of the Republic's existence, that is to die defending it in the last ditch, which is where we get the phrase last ditch from. But this flooding worked. The French army got literally bogged down. William was able to lead a fight back. He was able to turn people against De Witt. He was able to get himself made stateholder and managed to foment this big uprising against De Witt and his brother, which culminated in the two of them being assassinated. A a mob turned on them in The Hague. The civic militia shot the two of them and then left them to the mercies of the mob. 
who stripped them naked, mutilated them and strung them up on a public gibbet. And there are some reports that this mob, who are orangists, cut out the livers of De Witt and his brother, roasted them and ate them. Now, it sounds like you could do a whole episode on that. And maybe in the future I will find out the truth about this. But it was a frenzied uprising against them and it put William firmly in control. Now, officially, he claimed that he'd had nothing to do with the murder of Johann de Witt. It was a riot that he had no control over, a bit like the storming of the Capitol in Washington. William might not have given the order, but his bloody fingerprints were all over those mutilated, cannibalised corpses. The Dutch war against the French rumbled on for the rest of William's life. But as he's now more secure in Holland... The English start cozying up to him. And eventually, as we know, he marries Mary in this political marriage. And as far as William is concerned, a marriage to the heir to the English throne is a fantastic political move for him. He gets the English on side. He gets to use English resources, English troops, English ships to fight Louis. That's all he cares about. Mary's father, the Catholic King James II, has no male heirs. His first wife, Anne Hyde, mother of the princesses Mary and Anne, she died of smallpox. And James married again to an Italian noblewoman called Mary of Modena. And she's had a string of miscarriages. And it looks like James's eldest daughter, Mary, William of Orange's wife, is all set to inherit the English throne when her father, James, eventually dies at some point. But then, horror of horrors, Mary of Medina gives birth to a boy, James, and Mary is out of the running. William is out of the running. Rumours go around, promoted by anti-Catholics, that the child is not really James's, that it was a commoner's child, sneaked into Mary of Medina's bedchamber, hidden inside a bed-warming pan. Now, James's daughter, Princess Mary, publicly goes along with this conspiracy theory. It seems that she's more keen on taking the English throne than she is on her own father. A group of six English noblemen and one bishop, known as the Immortal Seven, a kind of Protestant superhero team, invite William of Orange to bring an army over to England and get rid of King James so that there won't be a new Catholic dynasty on the throne. And William sets sail with this humongous fleet, more than twice the size of the Spanish Armada, packed to the gunnels with troops. They land at Brixham, the West Country, march on London. James loses his nerve. He crumbles. He surrenders. William allows him to flee. And he and Mary are crowned as rulers of England. The Archbishop of Canterbury won't officiate at this. He doesn't approve of William being the king. So they draft in another archbishop. And we saw in the previous episode about Mary, how Mary was kind of left in charge of the government in England while William charged off to fight various wars. Um, the first was in Ireland, where the exiled James II gets the Irish Catholics to rise up against the English Protestants. And he leads them in this war a very short war. William takes a much better army over from England and defeats James ultimately at the Battle of the Boyne. King William is leading this army himself. All his life he had this tendency, you could say he was being brave, heroic, or you could say reckless, stupid, putting himself in danger, exposing himself. But that's where he liked to be, at the head of the army, fighting. He wasn't always successful. He probably lost a lot more battles than he won, but he won enough to keep on top. And he certainly won in Ireland. James fled and was never again a major threat. But at the same time, this led the Scottish to revolt, thinking that William would be preoccupied in Ireland. So the pro-James movement were known as the Jacobites, uh, Jacob being the Latin version of James. The Jacobites will ultimately rally behind James's son, the bedpan baby, 
James, who becomes known as the Old Pretender. And in the late 1680s, there were a series of Jacobite risings in Scotland, um, led by a man called Viscount Dundee, who raised troops mainly from the Highlands. They had a victory at the Battle of Killiecrankie, but unfortunately for the Jacobites, Viscount Dundee himself was killed in the battle. And a Presbyterian Scottish army, the Cameronians, who were loyal to William, fought back and put an end to the rising at the Battle of Dunkeld. And William was kind of exploiting the fractured nature of Scotland. All these divisions, the clans all held different beliefs and all seemed to hate each other. And the Highlanders seemed to hate the Lowlanders. If you were a lord in Edinburgh, you had a very different view and world outlook to a fisherman on the west coast or a crofter somewhere. And there was a fairly strong divide still between Protestant and Catholic. I mean, you can still see remnants of this in the rivalry between the two Glasgow football clubs, the old firm, Rangers and Celtic, one traditionally Protestant and one traditionally Catholic. And William successfully used a policy of divide and rule. He offered a pardon to any Scottish clans that had taken part in the uprising. They all agreed, but the Macdonalds of Glencoe didn't manage to sign the agreement before the deadline ran out. And this was used as an excuse by rival clans and by William himself to hit back at them. This incident became known as the Massacre of Glencoe. And even though only about 30 people from Clan MacDonald were actually killed, it was a very controversial incident and made William very unpopular, even though, as with the murder of De Witt, he claimed to have not been directly responsible. And he further enrages the Scots by not supporting this harebrained scheme and ruinous plan known as the Darien Scheme or the Darien Scheme. A Scottish colony was founded in Panama, the narrowest strip of land between North and South America, between the Atlantic and the Pacific. And the idea was that the Scots would create a colony there and control this strategically very important region. But it was a massively expensive undertaking and was never properly funded. And the whole thing quickly collapsed. People were dying from disease, from attacks by the Spanish and the French and by the local population. And it fell apart with a big loss of life and money. William had seen this as a ridiculous idea from the start and wouldn't invest in it. He wouldn't help them. And to the Scots, this was yet another example of the English behaving like a bunch of Sassanac bastards who hated the Scots. So William is not popular in Ireland. He's not popular in Scotland. He's not terribly popular in England. As I say, he mainly wants to use the English to drain resources to fight the French and he starts massively putting up taxes. And it seems that most of English history has been driven by people not wanting to pay more tax. And this is certainly the case with William. They turn against him. A guy called George Barclay leads a group of James's supporters in an assassination attempt on William. The plot is foiled. James becomes less popular. Indeed, it was the final nail in his coffin in terms of him ever trying to get back in power. And William, for a little while at least, becomes more popular. Now, he dealt with these threats pretty effectively and kept a cool head. But it's clear that he was not universally loved and he is not necessarily secure on the throne. And he basically spends the rest of his reign fighting against France and raising taxes. To enable this, he made sure that England joined the League of Augsburg, which became known as the Grand Alliance between England, Holland and the Habsburg Empire, which by this point was kind of Austria, Hungary and bits of Germany. And they united against France to fight the Nine Years' War. We've seen in the last couple of episodes how the English government is moving towards this two-party system with the Tories and the Whigs. And William initially supported the Tories, who he hoped would support him. But when they were reluctant to get involved in these wars, he switched his allegiance to the Whigs. And together, they created the Bank of England, a central independent bank that would lend money to the government and through the government to the king, i.e. William, in order to finance his wars. 
And this is the birth of the City of London, the banking and trading centre of the British Empire. And Britain is becoming a financial superpower. It's also the birth of the idea that there can be a national debt, as one of the main functions of the bank is to essentially manage government and royal debt. Now, William was never a very healthy man, and he grew progressively sort of shrunken and shriveled as he got older. And it seems that he was riven with various diseases. And as his health worsens, his power slips and rumours and gossip proliferate. The Jacobites are always plotting against him, and it's they who are chiefly behind the accusations of William being a homosexual. It seems he had a number of young friends, young men, who he liked to give promotions to, particularly a pair of good-looking young Dutch noblemen, Bentink and Keppel, who who sound a bit like an old-school musical act. Uh, But Keppel particularly had started out as a lowly page boy and ended up as an earl without ever actually doing anything of note other than being a friend of William. This was exploited by rivals at court who felt these positions should have gone to them. And it's like, oh, you know, oh, he's only made Bentink an earl because he fancies him. I'd have made a much better earl. Bentink and Keppel became the greatest rivals of all, and it seems they both started accusing each other of being rather too close to the king. Bentink wrote to James in 1697 that the kindness which your majesty has for a young man and the way in which you seem to authorise his liberties make the world say things I am ashamed to hear. I don't know why I did it in a posh English voice. I should have done it Dutch, but anyway. William was having none of it saying, and I'll do him Dutch, it seems to me very extraordinary that it should be impossible to have esteem and regard for a young man without it being criminal. Ah, just for a moment, I expect you thought you were actually there at the court of King William. And for the rest of his life, these two young men, Keppel and Bentink, sort of fight over James. When James becomes ill later on, they fight over who should look after him. And William is out riding one day, I think he was probably hunting, when his horse stumbled. He's claimed that it hit a molehill and fell, throwing William to the ground, uh, at which point he broke his collarbone. Some Jacobites claimed that this horse had been confiscated from a Lord Fitzwilliam, who had been involved in one of the assassination plots against William and beheaded his property confiscated and appropriated by William. They saw this accident as divine retribution against James. His broken collarbone didn't set. He's lying unwell and infection sets in. It goes to his lungs and he's killed by pneumonia. And ever since then, the Jacobites have this toast. And I think it's been adopted by quite a lot of Scotsmen who don't like the English. They raise a glass to the little gentleman in velvet, or the little gentleman in the velvet waistcoat. There used to be a famous equestrian statue of William of Orange uh, on College Green in Dublin. It was put up in 1701, and it was massively damaged in an explosion caused by Irish nationalists in 1928, and eventually removed in 1929. So not popular in Ireland. There is another equestrian statue of him um, in St James's Square in London, And apparently there is also a little molehill on that. Um, I must go and check it out. He is not a big figure in England. He's not particularly well known by the English. One of the reasons for this is that he was, as far as the English were concerned, the end of the line, our last Dutch monarch. No monarch since then has been descended from William because he managed to die without a male heir. Needless to say... There was the usual horse trading towards the end over who would succeed him. But the job of monarch went to his sister-in-law, Anne, the second of King James's surviving children by his first marriage. The son he had with Mary of Medina, James didn't get a look in. But we haven't finished with William. Make sure you come back after the break where I'll be discussing him with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Healy, author of The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So welcome back to this episode about William III. And welcome back to the historian, Dr. Jonathan Healy. Uh, Jonathan, you've come back for more. Yes, always great to be here. Now, Jonathan, I have claimed that the central driving force in William's life is his obsession with Louis XIV of France. Would you go along with that? So for William, the, one of the defining moments in William's life is in 1672, when allied with the English, the French invade the Dutch Republic and the Dutch are only able to keep the French out by flooding the dikes. You know, they have these big kind of waterworks which protect these flooded fens, basically, which gives the Dutch all their prosperity. And the only way they can fight off this French army is by flooding them. So the French army get bogged down and drowned and have to retreat. And William is responsible for that. But as a result of it, he has this kind of pathological, well, I mean, you might say quite justifiable hatred of Louis XIV, and that's his key priority. So if he's able to ally with the English, then from his point of view, that's all to the good. So, uh, and really, so that I can get my head around this, can we just look ahead a bit? After William dies, what happens with the Anglo-Dutch relationship? Uh, they become a lot closer. There's no real possibility of actually merging the two states, um, which, of course, you know, I mean, it happened with Hanover later, but they are generally pretty good, although by the late 18th century, they end up fighting a fourth Dutch war, which is really stretching the bounds of my knowledge. <laughs> but in a sense, William is kind of like, you know, sometimes we talk about the Second Hundred Years War, which goes from like Louis the Fourteenth up to Napoleon, basically. And William's the one who engineers the start of that, really, in, in the 1670s. Now, you sort of alluded to it before talking about mary and how much she was attracted to it seems to be quite a deeply unpleasant man william <laughs> from what i've seen of him in finding out more about all this i've really warmed to mary and i've gone right off william <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be very little to like about him but mary seemed to be a very interesting a very bright woman and actually learnt how to be a very good politician. Whereas William didn't seem that interested in politics. Government was only useful to him if it would give him the money to fight the French. And when he first came over and was made king, he had to agree to quite a lot of restrictions on his power in the Bill of Rights, which fundamentally changed the British monarchy's powers forever. But that didn't seem to bother him. I Once he'd made sure that he was a co-ruler with Mary and that if she died, he would remain on the throne. That was about it. That was all he cared about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's not that interested. I mean, he's Dutch and he doesn't really give <laughs> a shiny shite about the finer points of the English constitution. As, yeah. as long as it gives him what he needs, which is soldiers to go and fight Louis XIV, yeah. um, he doesn't mind. It's quite an interesting contrast with the Duke of Monmouth because Monmouth, you know, he's a kind of arrogant toff, basically, but he does have this really interesting Republican element to him. And Anna Kay wrote a really brilliant biography of Monmouth, which sort of really kind of fleshes him out. And So this is Monmouth, who is James's eldest son, yeah. the illegitimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he, in 1685, leads uh, a rebellion against his half-brother, Jay. They're all called James. It's James second and it ends at the Battle of, of Sedgemore with the bloody assizes and all those kind of things. And as part yeah. of that, he sort of gives out these declarations, which basically says, you know, the people are sovereign. I'm going to rule with parliament. I'm going to be a popular monarch. I'm not an absolutist, all these kind of things. So him, weirdly enough, although he's this kind of aristocratic playboy, 
and possibly not the sharpest tool in the box. He does have what seems like a sort of almost a kind of quasi-Republican ideology. Whereas William, who of course has come from a republic, I don't think he really cares. He's a soldier. You know, even more so than mm. James or Monmouth, who are both men with military backgrounds, I think William of Orange is first and foremost a soldier and a, a kind of geopolitical player, rather than having any particular interest in the, the ins and outs of the English constitution, which is not the same for people in England, because in England, people do care about that. And in Scotland, they care about that. They have views about how their state should be run. And William mm. is only acceptable because he's prepared to play along with these. And to get William into place, as we were saying before, that there's this Declaration of Rights. Can, can you just talk us through exactly how that works and how it becomes the Bill of Rights? Because this seems to be almost a constitution, a declaration that Parliament is more in control than the monarch. Would I be right? The constitutional provisions of the, of the Bill of Rights are in some ways a bit disappointing to us. What we would hope for is a sort of all people are born equal, you know, we the people kind of thing, really sort of stirring and modern. And it's not really like that. It's more the king can't imprison people without due process and there should be no cruel punishments and there should be no taxation without parliament. It's very much part of the debates of the 17th century. It looks back, it tries to settle running questions about the limits of the power of the monarchy in the 17th century. Mm. It's not a sort of universal declaration of human rights, which is what we would like to see as modern people. But if we can kind of put ourselves in that 17th century mindset and look at it and think, well, you know, what is it essentially doing? Well, it is essentially saying, here are the ways that the king could break the law. The implication <laughs> being, what do we do with the king who breaks the law? Well, we've had kings who've broken the law in this century. We had Charles I, who we decided had broken the law and we cut off his head. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to pretend that didn't happen, although everyone sort of knows that it did. So instead, let's have a look at James II. And the implication of the, the Bill of Rights is basically that if a king breaks these rules, these laws, then they will essentially no longer be the legitimate king. And there's all these kind of fudges around. It. I mean, there's, the Scots are much more direct. They just say, yep, James II, he broke the law, so we got rid of him. Fine. The English are really hedgy and try not to say that, but make sure that they imply it very, very strongly. And so it does kind of have this kind of longer term constitutional significance. I do think, though, that it was very much a sort of 19th century thing to look back at that and say, well, OK, 1688, 1689, Bill of Rights, that was the moment when we became a constitutional monarchy. And I think there's a not quite right about that. I mean, firstly, a lot of these debates go way back and you, know, you can mm. see them in the early 17th century. But also there's an awful lot after William comes to the throne, which is really, really important. And the one incredibly crucial thing is the Act of Settlement in 1702, in which Parliament says that if the monarch is a Catholic, they can no longer be king or queen. Now, you know, it comes out of this sort of 17th century bigotry against Catholics. But essentially what it's doing is it's saying that Parliament is able to change the succession. So once that's happened, once that's acceptable, and once when Anne dies, you get George I, who's like 50th in line to the throne or something, there is no question about it. This is a constitutional monarchy. So it's sort of part of that story, I think, but it's not necessarily even the biggest part. Right. So really... George coming to the throne is the birth of the era where Parliament is considerably more important and powerful. Than well, I, I like to see it as a sort of long revolution. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's the sort of to final come back point. to your book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's a revolution that goes back to Magna Carta yeah. or even before yeah, then, yeah. really, doesn't it? I mean, they all seem to be doing the same thing. And all of these the documents, like the Bill of Rights, seem to be much more about controlling the monarch rather than empowering yeah, the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's the, I mean, in some ways, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, but it, the focus is very much on the former. It's about making sure the monarch cannot be arbitrary and cannot be tyrannical and ensuring that the monarch is not above the law. Um, although there is an argument that today the monarch has become more above the law than they were perhaps in 1714 but that's a question for another day i think um, but, uh, a, a later episode yes. <laughs> so as we as we wrestle with the modern yes world. absolutely 
So earlier on, I touched on relationships between England and Scotland, where you have these sort of pro-English forces in Scotland. And I suppose you have Scottish independents who aren't, well, who aren't necessarily Jacobites. Um, And can you talk us through how that all works exactly? I mean, the relationship between Scotland and England. How much are the Scots wanting to be part of Great Britain, the British Empire, as it were? How many people there accept that whoever is on the throne in England also rules in Scotland? Well, it's a bit of a sore point, really, because in Scotland, there is no guarantee at this point that a kind of throne room revolution in England will be replicated in Scotland. And it's it's very, very controversial. And Scotland has its own parliament at this point. It has its own religion, the Kirk, and it has its own law. And that's very important. These are legal questions. The constitution is basically a question of, of law. And there is a massive power struggle in Scotland over the Glorious Revolution between, you know, on the one hand, people who want to use this as an opportunity to finally kind of settle the Scottish church as a Presbyterian church and those who want to protect the Stuarts. And the Stuarts have a lot of support in the Highlands. There's a lot of opposition to them in the Lowlands. There's a series of quite violent uprisings in Scotland in the reign of Charles II, in particularly in the Lowlands, which had poisoned a lot of people against the Stuarts. There's all kinds of things in, going on in Scotland religious, constitutional, factional, Highland versus Lowland. You know, obviously there's also clan loyalties as well, which are very, very important uh, in Scotland. And what it means is that when the Glorious Revolution is what we call in England, the Glorious Revolution is kind of transmitted to Scotland, it touches off a very violent political crisis, which ends with the development of Jacobitism. On the one hand, it's definitely not the case that the Scots are pro Stuart. It's not as simple as that. It never is. The sort of the idea of the Scots are all Jacobites is a much later myth. But at the same time, it's also the case that it's a lot more fraught in Scotland and it ends up in a much more factional conclusion, if you like. So, you know, one of the things about the Glorious Revolution in England is that they really do try and make sure that Whigs and Tories are able to get together and form governments. And obviously the Tories although they're kind of defeated at this point, they do, for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, they come on board. Whereas in Scotland, it's very much more of a victory for one group over the other. And that group made sure that the other group knew about their victory. And that's probably why you know you get things like Glencoe and then you get the emergence of Jacobitism. And it, it's, it, you know, it's a lot more violent. So how much support did the Jacobites have? You said they're not perhaps as strong and popular as... They often presented. Um, I think in the early days, uh, in say the 1690s, it's relatively small, although they had a reasonable amount of strength in the Highlands. There is quite a lot of Catholicism in the Highlands as well, which conditions that. But then, of course, it does, after 1707, it is able to kind of tap into that anti English, pro independence feeling. So once you get into the 15 and the 45, eventually, which is Bonnie Prince Charlie, there is quite strong Jacobite support in parts of Scotland. But there, there are Jacobites early on. And I think, you know, one of the big forces behind it is residual Catholicism, which is still quite strong in, in the Highlands. Right. Yeah, because I was going to say, uh, you know, the James, the old pretender, and Charles, the young pretender, they are Catholics? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, James the Old Pretender is, oh, I mean, they both are. They're both brought up in France. And yeah, they maintain the Catholicism of their father. Um, and it tells you that the the people who invited William over were kind of right, because what finally drove them to do that was that James had a living son. And they knew yes. that that son would be brought up as a Catholic, as indeed he was. And who started the story that the child was sneaked into the royal bedchamber inside a bedwarming pan? It's a useful fudge, basically. It's because these people, they don't want to say, well, they know he's legitimate. They know he's the legitimate son. Well, right. So it's a way of making it easier to say, no, exactly, he's not on the exactly, throne at yeah. all. It's a, kind of, it's a, it's right, a helpful right. fiction, a helpful fudge. But Mary seems to have gone along with that idea and, and thought it was terrible of her father to trick everyone. Like that. Yeah, but again, it's sort of public statement, isn't it? I mean, you <laughs> You don't know how far, yes. does she actually mean it? She's quite clever. She probably knows the right thing to say. <laughs> you know, I don't know how far we can trust what these monarchs say in public. So you're saying we can't trust history? I know, it's shocking, isn't it? It's a horrifying, <laughs> horrifying thing to learn. 
We need a group of professional people who can really look into the <laughs> yes, past we, and what happened and write books about <laughs> even it. Even if we did that, then we'd never agree on it, though. Was, you know. Well, that's what I've enjoyed so much making this series, is different historians have different yeah, views yeah. of the past, and you know, based on the same yeah. evidences, ways of interpreting yeah. it, and that people are very passionate about it. Yeah. And I've also noticed some areas that historians say, look, oh, come on, but I'm not going to talk about that. That's too controversial. <laughs> I'll be lynched by the other historians. <laughs> And talking about representations of the past, I, I guess we have the situation here where traditionally the history that we were taught in this country was very much what happened in England when William came over here. But that's not the whole story, is it? There's a Dutch side to it. Well, I do think it's important to um, to see William in, in the sort of international context. Right, um, yes. And it's quite interesting, the timing of the Glorious Revolution, because basically what's just happened in Europe is that France has started to be really quite aggressive. Uh, they called it a policy of reunion, which is a very sort of euphemistic way of saying we, you know, we go up to these little territories like Strasbourg and say, you've always been part of France, haven't you? And they say... Yes, you've got a very large army. You, we were, we, we've always thought of ourselves as French, absolutely. And as they're doing that, they're sort of building up this power base on the edges of Germany. And the German rulers start getting together and trying to fight this off. And William is kind of involved in all that. And the other big geopolitical thing that has happened is that in 1683, the Ottoman Turks have been pushed back from Vienna the sort of second great siege of Vienna. And what that means is that the Austrian Empire, who are Catholics, of course, closely linked with the Pope, um, have finally decided that they are able to deal with France because the Turks are now on the retreat. And so as part of that, they're sort of putting together this coalition, this anti-French coalition. And what William is really worried about is that if James holds on to the throne because he's quite pro-French. Um, England, Scotland and Ireland will swing behind France. And so they will kind of go onto the, you know, the, the wrong side, if you like. And so in some ways, the sort of invasion line, it's a bit about these isles being a kind of geopolitical pawn in a much bigger struggle, which is between France and the rest of Europe. And I think English historians can sometimes be quite introverted. <laughs> yes, it's all about exactly, us. Exactly, exactly. And, and, but as far as William yeah. was concerned, it's like he exactly. wasn't, no, it's all exactly. about Holland. But you would be useful. Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't really important things going on in England and there aren't reasons why the English political class are debating this and why they eventually invite William of Orange over. But you've still got to answer for yourself why it is that this guy takes the risk because it's a big, big risk. Yeah. He doesn't know how it's going to end. There's a real chance that he might get bogged down in a new English civil war. He's lucky he doesn't. It's a huge risk. You do, as a historian, have to think about why it is that he takes that risk. And there, I don't mm. think we can necessarily sort of see it as being, you know, he's standing up for the good old cause of English parliamentarianism. I just don't think that's very likely. I think he wants the British Navy and the, the soldiers that we can provide. Yeah, and to n not have another Anglo-Dutch yeah. war. So Austria is becoming a major player. Mm. Where does Germany fit in exactly to all this at this well, point? Well, Germany is a kind of... It's a sort of hodgepodge of small... Is it still called the Holy Roman Empire? Well, there Empire is a Holy Roman point. Empire, yes. What we now consider Germany is, is all part of that. But that's. it's probably fair to say that it's increasingly less important by this point. The Swedes are still very influential around there as well. You've got Poland, Lithuania, which is huge. And you've got the other sort of new kid on the block, really, is what at this point is called Brandenburg, Prussia, an amalgamation of two territories, Brandenburg around Berlin and Prussia around sort of Königsberg. And these are under uh, the Hohenzollern dynasty. And they've just started to kind of become quite militaristic, quite successful, quite effective, still quite small, but it's the sort of beginnings of what will become Prussia. And then, of course, becomes Germany. But we're still at this point looking at a, a Germany where there's lots of little territories. And that's one of the reasons mm. it's possible for people like France to just sort of pick these off one by one. And Spain is losing dominance. Yeah. In power. So Spain, I mean, this, of course, is the other big question that was probably quite big in William's mind is that Spain is currently ruled by someone called Charles II, 
Carlos II. Um, yes, um, who is uh, a Habsburg <laughs> and he's not particularly well. He's been part of a dynasty which have married within the family quite often. <laughs> Keep it in the family is their motto. And he's not got any children. So what's going to happen, what everyone knows is going to happen quite soon, is that the absolutely massive Spanish empire, which of course goes from the Americas to the Philippines, is going to be up for grabs. Uh, because there's no legitimate heir. And there's various different possibilities. It could be an Austrian Habsburg, or it could be a relative of the French king, it could be a Bourbon. So they know that the next big conflict is going to be over the Spanish succession. And that is going to really, it's going to be a worldwide conflict. And whoever wins that is basically going to dominate the globe. So there's quite a lot at stake. And, you know, one could forgive William for being a, a little bit less interested in the finer points of, of the English common law and actually just thinking, well, I've got to get all my chess pieces lined up because I know the next one is going to be a big one. And if I'm not able to stand up to Louis, then he's going to get the Spanish Empire. So what, what is a general view of all those European superpowers of England at this point? How significant is is England? Um, so England is probably a kind of second rank power, I would say. Right. So it's not, you know, it's not as powerful as the Turks, for example. It's not as powerful as the mm. Spanish, even, even though the Spanish are kind of in decline, really. It's probably not as powerful as Austria. But it is growing. It is becoming more important. Its naval strength is growing. Um, it's certainly rich as well. I mean, that's the other thing about England in this period is that it is a very rich country. And so, is, so is the Netherlands. You know, London is a very, very is a very prosperous city. It's, it's a fast growing city. England and and the the British Isles had been quite strong under Cromwell. Under Cromwell, both France and Spain had tried to cultivate British support and to sort of join in their wars. But then under Charles II, it had become a lot less powerful. And it, the army had been allowed to, had been kind of disbanded. The, the state was much, much weaker. Now, James II, interestingly, had kind of turned that around a little bit. So under him, the army had grown. It's very controversial. The navy was getting stronger and bigger. And the country had kind of just started to sort of finance itself properly, partly because it's getting a lot of revenues from international trade and colonial trade and things like that. So it's on the up. It's not yet the sort of, you know, absolute great power that it becomes in the 18th century, but neither is it a backwater. And I suppose it has taken its first steps onto, into becoming this huge Worldwide yeah. empire. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, one of the one of the weird things, one of the stupid things that James II does is he he manages to get himself involved in a war against the Mughal Empire in India, which is called you know, vastly huge and powerful and, and rich. And, you know, James has about sort of 500 soldiers and it goes predictably quite badly. But the fact that they are in starting to engage in these sort of military adventures across the globe shows that we're, we're sort of moving towards that kind of 18th century big explosion in empire. And of course, the, the American colonies at this point are, are developing quite rapidly as well. And it's interesting that in those wars that happen under William and under Queen Anne, so the War of the League of Augsburg or the Nine Years' War, which is under William, and then the, the War of the Spanish Succession, which is the big one that everyone is expecting, they are global conflicts and there is fighting in the Americas and there's fighting in India and there's fighting on, in the high seas. So they are big conflicts with imperial yeah. elements to them. And looking into all this, it really felt to me that there were a lot of modern parallels. We talk about the First World War and the Second World War, but both of those wars started essentially as a European war between the imperial powers and they were fighting over the same disputed territories that were being fought over back then. Alsace and Lorraine, for instance. And I suppose what made the 20th century wars global wars was the involvement of the likes of Japan and America. But America was also involved in these European wars back in William's time, wasn't it? In as much as the European imperial powers were fighting over who was going to be in control on the other side of the Atlantic. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, of course, those those colonial wars get bigger in the 18th century, but they are becoming a thing in the 1690s. And you talk about King William's War mm. is what it's called in, in the Americas. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Jonathan Healy for once again navigating us through the choppy waters of William and Mary and the great upheaval 
of the so-called Glorious Revolution. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And just to remind the listeners about your book, it's called The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England. In the next episode, Mary's sister Anne takes the throne and despite 17 pregnancies, none of her children survived to adulthood, plunging the country once again into a succession crisis. Be sure to join me for that. Follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Willy Willy Harry Steve was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Steve, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024.